Our friends, it really is a joy to be able to mark Pentecost and um, by preaching God's word and uh, thinking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even if I do have a massive gash in my face, uh, you can say from now on he's not just a pretty face or he's just not a pretty face. Uh, so uh, that was just a little um, a cancer, mate, pulled out of my face. I must be getting old. Uh, but um, I hope you'll uh, keep uh, Romans 8 in front of you. We're going to be going through Romans 8 over the next five weeks. And um, obviously it's Pentecost Sunday where we're marking the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Christ's church. And um, it does strike me that there is a spiritual hunger out there. Uh, there is a deep spiritual hunger out there. Uh, I was on holiday uh, just a few weeks ago down in Bustleton and uh, we went to a cafe with my family and next door to the cafe was a second-hand bookshop. Lynn, do you know the one? Sorry, wouldn't put you on the spot like that. They're from Bustleton. Um, a second-hand bookshop in Bustleton. And, and, you know, it always piques my curiosity, and so I went into the, uh, this bookshop, and um, I like to look for, uh, go to the religion spirituality section to see if there's anything, uh, you know, any little hidden gems or treasure that I'll be able to uh, find uh, on, 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 on the gospel. Uh, so I walked in and there was a massive religion and spirituality section. I mean, it was higher, taller than my head, all the way down to, my, to the floor, and it was absolutely packed with books on religion and spirituality. Uh, ten messages your angels want you to know. Uh, understanding your angels and meeting your guides. Uh, the energy codes. Crystal healing. And on and on and on and on it went. And, and this is, this, I mean, this shouldn't be surprising, but it was surprising to me. In a massive bookshelf, religion and spirituality, I kid you not, there was not one single book about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a massive spiritual hunger in our society. But it's the kind of spirituality that says, I'm spiritual, but not religious. In other words, I'm not interested, I, I'm interested in connecting with the beyond, with something transcendent, but I'm not interested in connecting with anything personal or a personal God or being, more like a force or an energy or connecting with the sacred. Uh, and this is, uh, this is the spiritual hunger that's out there, and, and these books are the thing that's on the menu. Uh, and so, uh, really, this is um, what you might call mysticism. And uh, mysticism, I looked it up, Wikipedia tells me that mysticism refers to any kind of ecstasy or altered state of consciousness which is given a religious or spiritual meaning. And so there's a deep hunger for this spiritual connection. Uh, but the problem is that it's so impersonal and it makes it totally unsatisfying, which is probably why they've all ended up in a second-hand bookstore. <laughs> because they haven't been worth keeping, Right? Uh, but people have this hunger for a deep spiritual connection, the experience of being fully known and fully loved. But the problem is it's really hard to do that with just an energy or a force or a vibe. Uh, to make a personal connection, you need someone to connect with. And someone needs to be able to contradict you to be able to have an intimate connection. Have you ever heard of an intimate relationship with someone where they can't contradict you about anything? I think back to my first year of marriage, and let me tell you, there was a heck of a lot of contradiction going on there, and it continues to today. In order to build an intimate relationship um, with, with, with someone, th that someone needs to be able to contradict you. And they need to be able to contradict you when you're condemning yourself or looking down on yourself. And they need to be able to contradict you in order for you to have that relationship with them. But 
Here's the thing. The mysticism is a reaction to another extreme in our culture, which is the extreme of pure enlightenment rationalism. This idea that there's nothing spiritual and all that we can see is what we can test with our five senses. That everything's rational and it just reduces us to kind of robots or computers where there's not, that doesn't satisfy, which is why you have these, this literature for the longing uh, for this deep spiritual thirst. And what I want you to notice as we go through Romans 8 is that when we're talking about the spirit, we're not talking about some ill-defined force or energy out there that we can all somehow tap into. But if you look at verse 9 in Romans chapter 8, when we talk about the spirit, we're talking about the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of Jesus. He is a person with whom we can have a personal relationship. So on the one hand, we're not talking about some ill-defined, warm and fuzzy experience with the other. But on the other hand, we're not just talking about mere facts or propositions or um, 12 rules for life, for example. No, we're talking about a personal experience with a person who is the truth. This is why Tim Keller says Christianity is far too mystical to be just rational and it's far too rational to be just mystical. Now put that, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, the word spirit in Romans chapter 8, it occurs 22 times. It's the most dense occurrence of uh, the word spirit in the entire Bible. And that's why we're going to go through it for this series kicking off with Pentecost. And if you want to look in the Bible and learn about who the spirit is and what he does, there's probably no better place to look than Romans chapter 8. Um, many heavyweights have called it the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. Now, you could also look at John 14 to 16, and I would encourage you to do that because Jesus teaches a great deal about the Holy Spirit in those chapters. But the word spirit occurs nowhere more than in Romans chapter 8. And if you want to know what the key to having a personal relationship with God that is intimate and experiential, you need look no further than the person of the Holy Spirit because he is the key to having an intimate personal experience of the living God, Jesus Christ. And so whilst he is the spirit, he's the spirit of Christ. Christ occurs, the word Christ occurs nine times in this passage and Jesus occurs five times. And so he is a person called Jesus. And it's interesting because the crescendo of this entire passage that's telling us about the Holy Spirit uh, is uh, Romans uh, verse 39, this famous passage that neither height nor depth nor uh, powers nor principalities nor things on earth nor things above nor the present nor the future nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to know. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to impress deep down in your hearts. But here's the interesting thing. Paul takes an entire chapter and an entire book to build a logical, rational, sequential, systematic argument building up to the climax of Romans chapter 8 where you can burst out of your skin with ecstasy saying, 
Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it's not just a mystical zap from the other. He's making a logical, rational case that will lead you to that experience of joy, ecstasy and delight as the truth transforms you and helps you to understand this amazing ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants you to know. And so I want to encourage you to track with the argument uh, as we go through Romans chapter 8. This is why elsewhere, Paul, in the start of his letters, like in Philippians, he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. And then he says, how? How may your love abound? In knowledge and depth of insight. How does your love abound? In knowledge and depth of insight. He says it again in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I pray that the Spirit may give you power. What for? To grasp the height and depth and breadth and width of his love and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, friends, I point to my head when I say no is a bit misleading uh, because the biblical sense of knowledge and the Hebrew sense of knowledge is in here, that you know it in your heart as an experience. And so there are dangers in the church that we can... The, the twin danger of firstly veering off too far into mysticism where it's just this lovey-dovey, feely, warm, emotional that becomes untethered from the truth, revealed truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's the other twin danger that we veer off into this rationalism that has no sense of experience and power and joy in the Holy Spirit. Are you tracking with me? And in some ways, it's not about striking a middle ground. It's actually about 100% of each. Just like we've struggled to fit the idea of Jesus being fully man and fully God, 100% both, not 50% of both. We want to be fully rational and fully mystical. Um, Does your head in, sorry. Confuse you. But I want to go through Romans 8 with you, and I want you to track this beautiful freedom in the spirit this morning and that's the topic that we're looking at Uh, and and you see this key verse the key theme the key phrase in Romans 8 verses 1 to 4 is set you free it's it's freedom in verse 2 the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death Um, but when you uh, get to Romans 8 verse 1 you kind of need to do some background because if you look at verse 1 and I do hope you'll keep your bibles open it begins with therefore And whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. He's bringing a conclusion based on what has gone before. And so we actually need to look at... The, uh, what has gone on before in verse, chapter 7, verses 22 to 25. And friends, if the key theme and v- word for verses 1 to 4 is the word freedom, then I want you to see that the key word and theme of the previous section, 22 to 25, is the word at war. We're talking about warfare in chapter 7, and we're talking about freedom in our passage today. Can you see that word at war in verse, where is it? 23. Uh, and so uh, there are these two forces. These, when it says law, most of the time, I want you to read power. It's the law of, uh, there are these two laws, and they're really two powers, two 
forces, like the law of gravity, right? There's a law, you could write it out, physics, I'm not good at this, you engineers could do that. But that's a power, right? And so when Paul is talking about law, he's talking about these two powers that are in conflict. I want you to see them, firstly in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. Do you see there's a power there of joy and delight in the law of God. But then there's a second law in verse 23. But I see in my members another law, can you see that? At war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin. So there's one law that loves the law of God at work in him, but there's another law that's making him captive to sin, to the law of sin. And I want you to notice with the passage in front of you that not only are there two laws, there are actually two locations within Paul that these laws are doing their work in. So look where sin is having its effect. In verse 23, he says that it's in my members. The law of sin has its effect in my members. In other words, it's at work in this body, these arms and these eyes and my sexual organs and my ears and my feet. The sin is at work in my members. So that's the location of the law of sin inside of Paul. But then the location of uh, his delight in verse 22 is where? In my inmost self. In other words, at the core of who I am, There's a law of love and delight and joy in God, but in my members, there's a law of sin. And so there's this conflict. And you know, you see the tension Paul has in Romans 7, where he says, the thing that I love, I don't do. And the thing that I hate, I do. And so there's this conflict of two laws at work within him. And you see the anguish that he has in the passage where he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's experiencing this tremendous guilt and condemnation. How can a holy God possibly accept and love me when I have this battle raging on in my members? But then something happens and he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've been set free. And this is what we're going to go through, Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. What freedom in the Spirit actually looks like. And I want you to notice that in verse 1, the first thing about this freedom is that there's no condemnation. Verse 1, that's our freedom. Verse 2, there's no bondage to sin. Verse 1, there's no condemnation for sin. Verse 2, there's no bondage to sin. But then verse 3 tells us how there's no condemnation. So how is it that there's no condemnation in verse 3? And then verse 4 says, how is it that we've been set free and and we're no longer in bondage to sin? And so that's what I want to go through with you for the rest of today. Firstly, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's really important that we get this clear. No condemnation means no condemnation. None. Other translations say it doesn't exist. Paul is being absolutely emphatic. You see, some people think that when we say sorry to God, we get forgiven and there's no condemnation. But as soon as we sin again, we're under condemnation. We're under his judgment. We're under his frown. And until you come and confess your sins again, you're under that condemnation. And so this is one of the most important Bible verses for you to get inside your heart. And you can spend a lifetime 
doing it inside your heart that there is no condemnation. Because if you don't get this into your heart, two things will happen. Firstly, you'll walk around feeling guilty and worthless and ashamed. Which is what drives so much of people's behaviour and our behaviour without us even realising it. This sense of shame and worthlessness. You feel like you'll never measure up, which will lead to this deep and desperate drive to prove yourself and to show that you measure up and to prove your worth to yourself and to the people around you, which of course leads to burnout and it leads to exhaustion and it leads to addiction because you're trying to soothe the pain of the sense of shame and worthlessness inside of you. Friends, the Holy Spirit wants you to be free from condemnation. But the second thing that will happen if you don't take no condemnation into your heart is that so much of what you do will be driven by guilt and fear and shame instead of by grateful love and joy and delight. Any psychologist will tell you that using guilt and fear and shame to motivate your behavior is a terrible motivator and it doesn't get you anywhere. In fact, it drives a cycle of despair and a cycle of addiction. And so to get this freedom in our hearts means that we are motivated not by fear and guilt and shame because we're not trying to achieve God's forgiveness or grace. We're motivated by grateful love and joy. And so when that voice comes to you saying, condemnation, you should be ashamed, try to get it into your heart that there is now no condemnation. But it's so important that you understand this next bit. And that is the answer to the question, how can that be? How is there no condemnation? I need to know that. I need to know that I know that I know that there's no condemnation. How can I know that? Verse 3. See how it starts? For? For? That means because. There is no condemnation because. For? Why is it? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin. In the flesh. So, why is there no condemnation? Is it because we mean well? Is it because we tried our hardest? Is it because uh, we're trying to be the right person and be a Christian? Is it because we go to church? Is that why there's no condemnation? No, 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 no. That is not why. That is a shaky ground on which to build your confidence. Friends, you have to get this clear, otherwise you won't enjoy the wonderful freedom of the Spirit. You see, this verse, verse 3, it describes one of the most important doctrines in the Bible, and that is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus became our substitute. You see, God the Son came from heaven to earth and he took on our flesh our flesh that has sin at work in its members right he says sin is at work in my members jesus came and took on that flesh that deserves condemnation but hebrews 4 tells us that he was made like us in every way and yet what he was without sin so he took on our flesh and yet he was without sin but then he says to deal with sin god condemned sin in the flesh now two questions firstly it says that god condemned sin in the flesh so whose sin did god condemn if jesus didn't have any sin he was made like us in every way and yet he was out sin but god condemned sin whose sin was he condemning 
It wasn't my sin. I wasn't his sin, sorry. It was my sin, I beg your pardon. It was definitely my sin. It wasn't his sin, I should say. That's a terrible parallel to be bringing. Uh, it was the Lord, it was our sin. And, and then it says it condemns sin in the flesh, right? Because Paul's going, I've got this flesh that's sinful and it deserves condemnation. How on earth am I going to stand before God? And the answer is it's because that sin in your flesh was condemned in Christ's flesh on your behalf. Past, present, future. Condemned. Past tense. Can I get an Amen. He was condemned in our place. In my place, condemned he stood. That is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord, because it was condemned in his flesh. So let me try and tell you what this freedom feels like from a testimony of a guy who says, I love the gospel. Before I really understood it, although I'd been a Christian for over 10 years, I was hiding from my wretchedness, my defences, my broken parts, even the abuse I suffered as a young boy. In fact, I was always hiding, hiding my anger, my jealousy, my arrogance, my conditional love, selfishness, brokenness, mistakes, weakness and inadequacies. I love knowing that I have nothing left to prove because I'm valued, loved and accepted by Jesus Christ. I can actually be free To be me. I can come out of hiding. It's freedom. I'm free to fail, to share my weaknesses and needs with others, to admit that I too have struggles and to admit I was wrong. Please forgive me. To recognize I don't have all the answers and to relax, not thinking I have to take care of everyone else. Friends, that's the freedom of no condemnation. Doesn't it feel good? He says the spirit of life, he says the mindset of the spirit in verse 5, I think it is, the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Friends, that's what this guy is describing, life and peace of the spirit, because there's no condemnation. So firstly, our freedom is that there's no condemnation for sin, verse 1 and verse verse 3. And now there's no bondage to sin, verses 2 and 4. There is no, we're free from the bondage to sin, even though we still struggle. Isn't it strange? Isn't it funny how Paul in Romans 7, he says, um, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then after that he goes, so there's a, um, I don't have it in front of me, sorry, but the last verse is, so I see this law at work in my members, that the law of sin is at work in my members, but uh, the law of the spirit uh, is at work in my inmost self. Here's what he's saying. Let me try and track it with you. Verse 2. He says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you've got these two powers again. There's the power of the spirit that brings life. Think resurrection life. Think the spirit that's when Christ returns will envelop the whole world and there'll be no more sin, suffering, death, crying or pain. That's the spirit of life. It's a quality of life has set you free from the law of sin and death, he says in verse 2. And these are in conflict with each other. And so what Paul is saying is that for those who have put their trust in Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross, the moment that happens, the Holy Spirit has come into your life, he's broken the power of Satan, sin and death at work in your soul, and he's ushered into your soul... The power of the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
has been brought into your life. So in the same way that the Israelites were slaves under an evil power called Pharaoh in Egypt and God came to them and through the sacrificial blood of the lamb that they painted on their doorposts and through the passing through of the Red Sea, they were rescued out of the power of Pharaoh and the the evil one Pharaoh and brought into the promised land, singing, dancing, shouting and praising on the other sides as Pharaoh and his army were buried at the bottom of the sea. That's the freedom he's talking about. The freedom that he's talking about is the king, ultimately the King Jesus who came from the land of freedom in glory and he came to earth, a land of slavery and to sin and suffering and death. And he came to battle the powers of darkness and sin and death on the cross. And while he lay dead in his tomb, it looked like there was no hope and the power of sin and death and evil had triumphed over him. But friends, get this. The devil had no charge against him. The devil had no charge against him. There were no wages of sin that Jesus couldn't pay. And death had nothing on him. And so as he lay dead in that tomb, the Spirit of God came upon him and he was raised to newness of life, conquering the power of death because death could not hold him. And he was raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father, given the name that is above every other name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, even of death and sin and hell, to the glory of God the Father. And that's the power that he's wrought in our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he opens our eyes to the glory of who it is that he is and what that he's done. And so, yes, even though we still struggle with sin, because the law of sin is still at work in our members, it's at work in our members. Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because that sin has been condemned in Christ's flesh. And even though we still struggle with sin, we have been set free ultimately and it's only at work in our members, what Paul is saying, it's only at work in our members whereas at the core of our being, in our inmost self, we're under the power and control of the spirit of life and peace, the spirit of Jesus. And so as Charles Wesley puts it so beautifully in the hymn, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in guilt and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. This is the freedom from the bondage of sin being brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. When now we, he's got a grip on us and he says, I'll never ever let you go. And so no one could put it better than Paul himself in, the, in chapter 8 verses 1 to 4. Friends, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Spirit's law of life has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Amen.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would move among us in a new way. Come, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would pour your spirit out upon us. Lord, come now, we open our hearts to you and we ask that you would highlight to us what it is that you are saying. What do we need to bring before you, Lord? Where do we need to do business with you? Come in power. Meet with us today. We open our hearts to you. Show us where we need to do business with you today, Father. Lord Jesus, you said, which of you sons, if you, fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? And which of you sons, if they ask for bread, will give him a rock? You fathers, though you are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We ask for your Holy Spirit, Father. Thank you for your generous heart towards us. Help us to step out and to ask and to do business with you today. We thank you for the freedom of the Spirit and we ask for more. In Jesus' name, amen.